If you have a Bible, you will want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we are in, in my opinion, the most challenging part of our walk through this book. Um, if you are a 6th through 8th grade boy, you're getting ready to know what I'm getting ready to say, likely. Um, but one of their favorite things to do in our youth ministry, as we go into small groups, after we study the Bible, their favorite thing to do is to do random question time. Uh, with, with me and the other small group leaders. And, and what this random question time ultimately results in is uh, some of the most crazy and ridiculous questions that uh, Dakota Rice, John Hinkle, Tyler O'Connell, and I have ever heard in our lives. And I mean, if you think they're crazy, I'm getting ready to tell you how crazy they are. And I wish I could say that at some point uh, in, during random question time, they, they actually go back to being serious like we were whenever we were studying the Bible. But that's not the truth at all. It, questions just get end up being more crazy and more ridiculous as time goes on. And, and what it ends up being is a crazy assortment of questions that are centered around the most hype, like unlikely hypotheticals that you can imagine. Um, and, and these dudes create like some of the weirdest ones. I actually texted a few of them to figure out the one that I was looking for. And so listen closely and see if you know the answer, okay? If you're driving down the road in your canoe and all the wheels fall off, how many hammers does it take to fix your doghouse? Anybody know the answer? That's not a 6th or 8th grade boy? I'll tell you. Purple, because ice cream has no bones. What? Right? Like, it, it, it's, it makes no sense at all. And I have to imagine that Paul felt a little bit like you and, and like I do often. Um, whenever these first century Corinthians um, were claiming that there was no resurrection of the dead, um, he, they were dumbfounded, or Paul, excuse me, was dumbfounded by, by such a claim. Even though Jesus being resurrected bodily was proclaimed by this church and it was proclaimed to them by Paul, there were some, for reasons unknown to us, that, that just said there is no resurrection of the dead. People don't raise back to life in glorified bodies after they die. They just simply are no more. This false claim that we find in 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve will be the primary issue that Paul tackles in our passage this morning. And Paul's answer in this letter to this claim that there is no resurrection of the dead, it, it's nothing short of brilliant. It's, it's a mixture of Paul running with their really foolish and, and honestly quite dumb logic. It, it's mixed in with a little bit of Paul's own sarcasm. And then also he ends it with the theological basis for the bodily resurrection of those who follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So if you are on page 961 in those blue pew Bibles below you, let's go ahead and begin reading 1 Corinthians 15 uh, together. And before we do that, I, I just want to remind people, what we're doing is we're looking at this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, through a series called Resurrection Matters. And what we're doing is we're talking about why does this idea of resurrection, specifically Jesus being resurrected, and those of us being resurrected, why does that matter for us today? And Paul's really going to get into the nitty-gritty with that here in our passage this morning. So follow along with me in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father for after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted 
who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts of Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I think the main idea of this passage is this. Resurrection matters because the consequences of Jesus' resurrection matter. Resurrection matters because the consequences of Jesus' resurrection matters. And specifically, it matters for us. It matters for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage in two different points. The first, we're going to see, and as you can probably tell, there's just kind of this layout of this idea of if there is no resurrection of the dead, that's going to be point one in verses 12 through 19. And then in point two, it's going to be, but Christ has been raised from the dead. And we're going to do that from verse 20 all the way to verse 34 through those two points. But again, that main idea is really, really important. Resurrection matters because Jesus' resurrection matters, especially the consequences of Jesus' resurrection. They matter to us as believers in Jesus Christ. So why don't we look first at this idea, if there is no resurrection of the dead, beginning in verse 12. As I mentioned earlier, Paul's answer to this false claim that we see him bring up in verse 12, it's brilliant. Everything that he has said in the previous 11 verses, which we talked about last week, it's completely contradictory to everything that he's getting ready to say um, and and everything that these folks are claiming. So he's going to run with their logic here, this idea that there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then the gospel doesn't matter, which is what we talked about last week. But Paul, being wise, he wants to respond, and and somewhat shockingly, he plays into their hand. He says, okay, let's run with this idea that there is no resurrection of the dead. And the first way he addresses this claim is by sarcastically agreeing with them and saying, "Let's, let's see where this turns out if we actually believe that there is no resurrection of the dead. What are the results? What are the consequences of making such a claim? So I think what we see in this first little chunk here, six negative consequences of this false claim. And the first of them is that Christ has not been raised. And we see that in verses 13 and 16. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. Paul starts off by telling them, not just once, but twice in these seven verses, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ also cannot be raised. He cannot be resurrected. This is significant because, as we discussed last week, the the central component, the linchpin of the gospel that we all believe as Christians hinges on Jesus being raised from the dead. Forgiveness of sins, having faith, having faith for tomorrow, having hope about life after death, that all hinges on Jesus being resurrected. I believe what Paul wants to show them at the forefront is such a claim like this, that there is no resurrection of the dead, it corrupts the message of the gospel. It, it, it will totally transform it into something that it, it, it's never intended to be for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I want you to think about, if you looked at verses 1 through 11, how much time Paul has already spent just belaboring the idea that the resurrection is central to the gospel. He has spent so much time on that for these members. Friends, the gospel of Jesus And specifically, the idea that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, it is not something to be trifled with. It's not something to be changed or manipulated by us. It is something that God gives to us. It is something that God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And we have no right, we have no prerogative to change that message. If any portion of what we understand as the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, if it is unclear, if it's miscommunicated, or maybe perhaps not communicated at all, there are severe and drastic damages that come from preaching this non-gospel, light gospel, whatever it is. Brother elders, I know we spent a lot of time this week 
praying that we would watch for our life and our doctrine. But one of the things that we have to value, and as I know you do already, we must care about how the gospel is communicated in this church. It doesn't matter if it's in our kids' life classes. It doesn't matter if it's a person up here. It doesn't matter if it's in the weekly Bible studies that we have. We have the responsibility to protect the gospel. We have the responsibility to make sure that it is accurately being displayed for our members. And members, you also have a responsibility to protect and uphold the gospel as well. As a church member, you must care about how the gospel is presented. You must care that the gospel is presented at all. If we get up here as preachers and we don't share this marvelous news that Christ has been resurrected from the dead, you need to be the first person that says something about that. One pastor has commented on this idea that churches protect the gospel, members of churches protect the gospel in this way. He he says that churches are like the gold prongs of an engagement ring. They hold the diamond of the gospel in place. Imagine instead a man who gives an unattached diamond to his fiancée and then she keeps the diamond in her pockets. Eventually that diamond's going to fall through a hole and just end up in the laundry. Friends, what I want us to understand is that if we do not prize and protect the very message that makes up our fellowship, then what we communicate to the watching world is inaccurate. If we don't cherish and prize this idea that Christ has been resurrected from the dead, then we just might as well be another club or another organization that exists. We organize and we fellowship over nothing. Please protect and prize the gospel. The second consequence that we see of this claim that there is no resurrection of the dead is that preaching is in vain. And we see this, I think, in verse 14. If Paul delivered to them, as he said last week, of what is first importance and proclaimed to them that Christ was raised from the dead, all of what he delivered and proclaimed is as of nothing if there is no resurrection of the dead. I mean, that's the whole point that he went to Corinth, because Christ has been raised from the dead. He went there so he could preach and tell others about it. We read last week in verse 11 that if it was Paul or someone else, they heard this gospel and they believed it. In in Acts 18.11, it says that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and six months. And for those 18 months, he he labored there among them. He, he, He taught the word of God to them. Paul's saying here in verse 14 that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then all that time that he spent there preaching, teaching about Jesus, and specifically about him preaching, teaching that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead for that 18 months, all of that was worthless. It's worthless if there is no resurrection of the dead. All of their hard work as a church, proclaiming the gospel, letting it be known to others, it's in vain if there is no resurrection. Now, I wonder for those of us that might teach, like, for example, kids' life classes, or uh, maybe even, in my case, youth group, leading small groups for our youth kids, I wonder if sometimes you feel like your proclamation of the gospel to these young ones is in vain. I think what Paul is doing here is a little bit of reverse psychology and trying to tell you this hypothetical that Paul describes here for us this morning it's, it's not real. It's fake. The reality is, as we're going to get into a little bit later, that Christ has been raised. So friends, if you teach those little ones, and you teach these youth students, and maybe you're in a Bible study, where maybe it feels like you're throwing seed on rocky ground, keep preaching the gospel. Keep teaching the gospel. Your labor and your efforts to make Jesus known to those kids in life class, the adults in your life group, the students in Thrive or Yak, Whatever it may be, in all the areas where it seems like it's in vain, it's not. Your gospel proclamation is not in vain. Keep teaching. Keep preaching. If Christ has been raised, which we're going to be getting into, your faith is not in vain, and your ministry of God's word is not in vain. The third consequence, I think, that we see, along with our preaching being in vain and Christ not being raised, the third consequence of this logic of there is no resurrection of the dead is that we are found to be misrepresenting God. And actually, the more dire consequence is that we make God to be a liar. If Christ has not been raised, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we make God to be a liar. And I think we see this in verse 15. This particular consequence is, at least to me, one of the most interesting out of all of them that Paul raises. 
I think it's interesting because Paul is wanting those who are making this claim to see that God the Father would be actually incriminated. He would actually be made wrong in, in a moral way if there is no resurrection of the dead. As Paul asserts here, God the Father is a central character in the gospel message. Particularly, as he states, that it was God the Father who raised Jesus up from the dead. And Paul is arguing that because God was so active in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then what they are proclaiming, what they have proclaimed, is no longer true. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then God did not raise Christ from the dead as well. It's a lie, if this logic is true. And if their proclamation is a lie, then the person who raised up Jesus from the dead, he's also a liar. Paul is basically saying, by making such a claim, that there is no resurrection of the dead, if you make that claim, you make God to be a liar. And friends, what we see throughout Scripture, we know that's not true. But that is what a drastic consequence of this claim is making. That God is a liar and he's not to be trusted. Reading verse 15, it actually reminded me of, of, of Balaam uh, from Numbers. And I don't know if you all remember Balaam, but Balaam was actually an enemy of God. And he was hired by a different king who was against the people of God. And this king told Balaam, prophesy against these people and curse them. And, and Balaam goes to try, and this is what he says uh, not just about uh, God's people, but specifically about God in Numbers 23:19, He says about God, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Even whenever Balaam was told that he needed to prophesy about who God was and, and how he was going to curse his people, Balaam, all he could do was speak the truth about who God is. And I think it's interesting that he points to the fact that God is not a liar, that everything he does is true. Paul is wanting those who are making this claim to see that their folly is the same as Balaam's. You cannot make God to be a liar because that is not who he is in his character. Friends, if we run with this logic that there is no resurrection of the dead, that's the incriminating thing that we say about God. He's a liar that cannot be trusted. A lie like this would undermine the very character of God. And since God is the very source of truth for all people, There can't be a lie in him. So think about it, Corinthian church. Think about it, South Kenyan. If we're going to make such a claim, how is this undermining who God actually is? The fourth consequence that we see that if there is no resurrection of the dead, as Paul says, our fourth consequence is that our very faith is in vain and there is no forgiveness of sins. And I think we see this in verses 14 and 17. Our very faith is in vain and there is no forgiveness of sins. Without belaboring the point too much, we already understand that the gospel message, it would be lost without Jesus' resurrection. But Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand that this gospel message that they trust in for the forgiveness of sins, it would also be lost. We, we believe in Jesus, right, because of what he's done for us. But specifically, we believe that as sinners needing to be reconciled back to a holy God, Jesus accomplishes everything on our behalf so that can happen. And if we say that there's no resurrection of the dead, then our faith in that, gone, futile. I really don't want us to miss what Paul's understanding of Jesus' atoning and sacrificial death on our behalf here means for us. Jesus' act of dying on the cross was meant to be the payment for our sin to satisfy God's wrath. Jesus took on God's wrath on our behalf to satisfy the right judgment that God has against sin. And therefore, it turned away God's wrath from us and instead was laid on Jesus. If Jesus has not been raised, we all still deserve God's wrath. We deserve His judgment on sin. Because if Jesus has not been raised, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then this atoning sacrifice that Christ makes for His people, it's it's nothing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't accomplish anything. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our union with Jesus in his death is meaningless. It accomplishes nothing for the payment of our sin. And for believers, Jesus' resurrection not only proves that death of Jesus was a payment enough for our sins, 
but it also communicates that we are not just united with him in his death, as we show in baptism, but that we are also raised with him in his resurrection. That his righteousness, his righteous standing before God is given, it's imputed to us. God the Father looks at those who have faith in Jesus Christ and says, that brother or sister is righteous because of Christ's death and resurrection. And if we claim that there is no resurrection, then we don't have that relationship with God the Father as him viewing us as his child who is righteous and spotless before him. If Jesus is not raised, then we are no longer imputed or attributed as righteous in the sight of God. And therefore, we still need reconciliation back to him. Friend, we should be in awe and wonder at what God does in Jesus' resurrection for our salvation. We should be in awe at the fact that God did raise him from the dead. What we see here is that God did everything for us to be forgiven of our sins. Is this not the whole point of the gospel? That God would do everything for those who would come to him in faith to be reconciled back to him. God, in his kindness and in his mercy, he calls all of us to be reconciled back to him through faith in the resurrected, the raised up from life, Jesus. How do we know this? Jesus says this of himself in John three sixteen and 17, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be not resurrected, but instead be resurrected and have eternal life. And Jesus goes on to say in John three seventeen, For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the only way that the world can be saved through him, for those of us that trust in him can be saved through Jesus, is if he resurrects. I wonder if you're here this morning, and maybe you believe that you don't necessarily need to believe in Jesus to have a relationship with God. Maybe you're speaking spirituality, or if you will, God, in some other way, like mysticism, or, or being a good person and, and catching like, good vibes from God because you've been a good person. Friend, I hope you see that as Christians, we base our whole religion, our whole faith, our whole practice, I would even say as well, on this idea that Jesus did indeed resurrect from the dead. But friend, I hope you see that we're also saying so much more. We're saying that God's love for his people is so great, it's so vast, that God would do, and he has done everything necessary for you to be reconciled back to him. He has done everything for you to be brought near to him and for you to be saved from yourself and from your sins. Friend, your seeking of God in all these aimless and vague attempts, they will not accomplish for you what God has already accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. God has done it all for you. All you need do is have faith in Jesus and have faith in his resurrection. Friend, your, your attempts to earn favor with God, your attempts to want to know him, they won't work because they aren't real. And what we're inviting you to this morning is that you can have a real and genuine hope for a right standing with God if you just believe in Jesus' resurrection and if you will turn from your sins. God has done everything else for you. Just believe. If you want to talk about that, I'm going to be out those doors at the end of the service. You can talk to Pastor James or any of the elders would love to talk to you about this. Stop aiming for the wrong thing and aim and look to Jesus. The fifth consequence that we see from this idea that there is no resurrection of the dead is this, that there is no hope for the dead in Christ. There's no hope for those who have died I think we see this in verse 18. I think this is perhaps the most sad consequence we see of this false claim of there being no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, there's no eternal life at all. There's no eternal life for those who have, as Paul says in our first 11 verses, for those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. What Paul is talking about here in this verse is those who have died. They, they've They've fallen asleep, as he says, in Jesus, meaning they, they've died with faith in the gospel. They've died knowing that Jesus is their King and Lord, and that if they put their trust in him, they'd be forgiven of their sins and one day raised back to life. But Paul says if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then there's no hope for those that are dead. Paul wants to make clear that for these Christians, because this is the idea here, these are people that are members of this church making this claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. If they are making this claim, all of those friends, all of those family members, all of those loved ones that have died in Christ, they are utterly gone. They're completely perished. And truth be told, as I'm sure you're thinking of your loved ones, if you can imagine and place yourself in the shoes of these first century Corinthians who have likely seen brothers and sisters lost because of their faith in Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying, if, if this claim is true, it should put your stomach in knots. One commentator, he stated that Paul has in mind the emptiness and waste of irretrievable loss as an utterly lost or lost for good. They will never awake from sleep is the idea that he's getting at here. Given the tone of what Paul is saying here in verse 19, I think Paul is wanting them to see the utter hopelessness of this kind of claim. The hopelessness that it would create in the brothers and sisters that they claim to be a part of. Likely there would have been some from this church in Corinth that have died for believing in Jesus and for believing in this gospel that if you place your trust in him, he will raise you from the dead. And their claim for no resurrection of the dead is basically them rubbing in the grief of the person who has lost that loved one by saying their death for their faith, it was for nothing. You will never see them again. Death does have the last word. This is so cold and calloused. I'm going to give Paul's rebuttal to this claim in the next section. So just hold on for a few moments. But I do think this is where we begin to see Paul shift from sarcasm to real seriousness about this idea and and great disapproval about this claim that's being made. Consequence number six, final one. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then there's no hope for those of us who are alive in Christ. There's no hope for those of us who are alive in Christ, and therefore we're the most to be pitied, as we see in verse 19. Paul goes on to say that if this life is all that matters, since there is no eternal life, because that's the implication of claiming that there is no resurrection of the dead, if if this life is all that matters, then Christians are most to be pitied. They are most to be looked down upon. Why? Because they've placed all their hope and their future in some no-name Jewish carpenter who died a horrible death on a Roman cross and never resurrected. They hinged their whole life. They banked everything on this claim. And now it's for nothing. They've been telling others to believe in him. And despite even being killed for doing so, they, they've died for this thing and it's nothing. They have been giving their very lives for the ideals that Jesus told them to live by. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, it's for nothing. They've been giving up their various temptations. They've been giving up their deep-seated sins, all in vanity. I think this is why later on in verse 32 that Paul states, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They might as well have just been living their lives for the desires of their flesh, eating whatever they wanted, drinking whatever they wanted, sleeping with whoever they wanted, and doing whatever they wanted. If Christ has not been raised, just gratify yourself is the idea here. And if they aren't, if Jesus hasn't been raised and they aren't doing any of those things, they're the most to be pitied. Because instead of seeking after their sin, they have instead followed this Jesus who maybe himself has never resurrected. Friends, this is a dangerous, dangerous claim. And again, we're going to be getting in this in, in Paul's rebuttal here in verses 20 through 34. But Paul says, If you just want to sin, you might as well do it because Christ hasn't been raised. Don't need to be forgiven of your sins. Just go ahead and keep on doing whatever you're doing. But, verse 20, right? But Christ has been raised from the dead. This is our second point of the sermon, but Christ has been raised from the dead. As we go into this next point, I want you all to see that Paul, he gives these benefits, these positive consequences of Christ's resurrection. And we actually see very specifically Paul addresses each of those negative consequences that I talked about uh, in, in, in a positive view in light of Christ resurrecting. Now, 
while I would like to go through each positive aspect and how it ties in to each negative consequence for the sake of your time and, and for the sake of the people in nursery and children's church, I'm not going to do that. But I would like to show you three broad positive consequences to Christ being raised from the dead. I mean, if you're just a general reader of the Bible, whenever you see but in the New Testament, read that verse and read it again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And the first consequence that we see, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we therefore have a forerunner in Jesus. We have a forerunner in Jesus. And I think we see this in verses 20 and 22. I want to go ahead and read those for us one more time. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Right from the beginning, Paul is making this contrast that we see to dispel this notion that for those who have fallen asleep in Jesus or have died, they are not lost and immediately perished. Because why? Because Christ has been raised. Paul wants to assure these living believers and us today that because in fact, I mean it's an emphatic idea here, in fact, if I claim anything that you read, in fact, if Christ has been raised, he is the first fruits, or as I'm saying here, he is the forerunner in both death and in resurrection. We can have hope and know that those who have fallen asleep, because Jesus is our forerunner in both death and resurrection, that those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Jesus, they will be raised because it is a fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. How does Paul make this claim? How does he show them this? He doesn't say that they can look for signs of their friends in some mystical way. He doesn't say to contact a medium and see if you can get in touch with them. All he says to do, Christian, if you feel any hopelessness about whether or not Jesus has been raised from the dead, this is what he tells you. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus did die, but Jesus also resurrected. He reminds us that it was by a man in Adam, as Pastor James prayed, it's by Adam that all have been given this curse of death because of his sin, because of our sin. We, we, we call this understanding the transmission of sin. Adam's sin transferred down to us, and the consequences of Adam's sin have also transferred down to us. Adam was our federal representative. He was the one that, if we could pick any human being in the whole world, that we would say, hey, this guy, he, he could represent us and not sin before God. Adam was it. He was so closely communed with God, he knew him so intimately. And yet, as we see in Genesis 3, Adam sins against God. Our representative failed at the task that we elected him to. And therefore, because we are related to Adam in blood and in flesh. The consequences of Adam's sin has also fallen on us. We find that our representatives failed in doing what God has commanded by sinning. But Paul tells us that if death has happened by this one man, Adam, there is life in this one man, Jesus Christ. He tells us that by this man, this Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, 100% man, 100% God, that we shall all be made alive. Friends, Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Adam failed by not obeying the voice of the Lord. Jesus succeeded by obeying his heavenly Father's voice perfectly. Adam failed when it came to keeping his wife Eve from sinning by not laying his life down for her. Our forerunner, the first fruits, Jesus, he succeeded by dying for his bride as a perfect and atoning sacrifice for those that he loved. Adam failed by not driving the serpent out of the Garden of Eden. Jesus succeeded by crushing the serpent's head in his death, and he will one day throw him out of eternity forever and ever. Brother and sister, you have a better representative. You have a forerunner in Jesus. Jesus goes before us by tasting the sting of death that we all deserve, and he does it on our behalf. Jesus goes before us by being separated from God, by taking on our sins. And Jesus goes before us by being the first fruits, 
the forerunner, the very first of many brothers and sisters for those who will resurrect just like he did. So for those of us who have lost a beloved family member, a friend, a person that we know that has given their life for the sake of God, remember, we have a forerunner in Jesus, one who was raised, and because he was raised, they will raise as well. The second consequence that we see is that because Christ has been raised from the dead, we therefore have a sure future in Jesus. We have a sure future because of Jesus. And I think we see this in verses 23 through 28. We see here in these verses that Paul gives us the order of the resurrection and of the events following. We see, as you follow along with me in these verses, that Jesus has been raised first, and then it will be those who have faith in Jesus as their Savior that are again made alive in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Now, one of the questions that should come up, well, is it the dead in Christ that are going to live first, or is it those who are alive? Who's going to be resurrected, if you will, first? And Paul seems to be less concerned about who or the order of when those dead in Christ or alive in Christ are going to be resurrected and glorified. He, he seems more concerned, actually, about convincing us that it is because, in fact, that Jesus has been raised, that everything else that follows will happen. Because Jesus has been raised, everything that he's getting ready to say, it is bona fide truth. It will happen. Our future as Christians, again, it just hinges on the resurrection. I hate belaboring this, but it's the point, right? I don't mean this just in the sense of whether or not we're going to be raised back to life. This also means that everything lists in verses 25 through 28 must also happen because Christ has been raised. It must and will happen that Jesus returns and delivers the kingdom of God by destroying every rule and authority that opposes God. It must and will happen that Christ will reign here earthly until all of Jesus' enemies are put under his feet. We read this in Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. God said that it was going to happen in the Psalms through the psalmist. And Paul's saying, this is going to happen because Christ has been raised. It must and will happen that Christ will destroy death, the curse of sin against God. It must and will happen that God will place all things in subjection to Jesus as Adam was meant to have all things in subjection to him. We see this revealed in in, in Psalm 8-6, that that was the intention, that Adam was meant to have this dominion, this subjection of all things to him. But instead, God is going to take Jesus and put all things under subjection to him. He says, obviously, here in this verse, when all things are subjected to him, Jesus, the Son himself, will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. In verse 28. That's a really confusing verse, but I think the point that we're trying to get at here is that this is the sure future for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there will be an eternity in our resurrected bodies with all the saints in Christ where there is no evil, no sadness, no suffering. And this all will come by the presence of the Godhead, where God places things all in subjection in Jesus' hand. And Jesus, after he's defeated every earthly rule and authority and all evil and crushes death for the final time, he will hand things back to his Father because his Father is the one that orchestrated this all so that we all may be glorified, or that he may be glorified and we all may glorify him, where God gets all glory and praise. It will be an eternity, as Paul states, that God is all in all. That is the sure future for us. But for many of us who, who know the truth of that day, we read passages like Revelation 22 and, and know and long for that day where there is no sickness, no suffering, no death, no tears. We know that it's hard living in a fallen world. We all suffer here now. I think of the many brothers and sisters that we pray for week after week as elders and as pastors that suffer here now. It could be sickness. It could be the dark night of the soul. It may even very well be because of your faith that you're suffering here now, Christian. Brother and sister, remember, Christ has been raised. And one day you will too. It's not just the dead in Christ that are going to raise you 
will be made new. You will be made alive in the most complete and beautiful and redemptive and glorious way that you can imagine. There will be a day, brother and sister, where you get to see that Christian loved one that you've lost. There will be a day where the suffering of what you're going through right now bodily, it will be done. There will be a day, brother or sister, where the depression ends. There will be a day, friend, where all the ridicule you have faced for being a Christian, it will be worth it. It will be worth it because God will be all in all and you will see your righteous Savior face to face. The third and final positive consequence that we see is because Christ has been raised from the dead, our righteous living for God is worth it. Now, I know you all have been waiting and biding your time because this is the section that we're waiting for. What does Paul mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? What does this mean? And we're going to get to that. But I want to let you know, those of you who are really eager to find this out, this is not the main point of this passage. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. I think the primary aim of this like last little section here in verses 29 through 34, it's to encourage righteous living. It's in, to encourage you that you will live a life that pleases God. But I do think it is worth spending some time on. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time uh, and thanks to uh, theological commentaries, pastors, and uh, gotquestions.org. We're going to go over what is Paul maybe meaning here. So there's, uh, I have here, I've got four views of what people have interpreted this to be. And I'll tell you, one of them, it's not right. It's wrong, okay? And it's this first one. Some read verse 29 as quite literally as being baptized for the sake of the dead or for those who are almost dying and dead. And in my opinion, this is really, it's the least faithful interpretation because it leads to what is called vicarious baptism which means that people will get baptized if a person is dying and sick and they come to faith in Jesus Christ and they somehow physically couldn't get baptized, they would go do it on their behalf. I, I don't think that's a faithful interpretation of this passage. Um, the Mormons uh, believe in this. I, I just reject it totally. That, but there is one way that people view this, but I don't think that's a right application of this. And actually, at one point in church history, it was deemed heretical uh, to do vicarious baptism like this, just to let you all know. Another view is that those baptized for the dead had been baptized with the hope and expectation of the resurrection of the dead. And they had received this as one of the leading doctrines of the gospel. They, they knew that they were getting baptized on behalf of, like, my dead body going to be raised back to life. I think it was a little bit harder to kind of get through interpretive um, measures-wise, but that is a, a faithful view. Another view interprets those baptized for the dead as those who are taking the physical place left vacant by believers who have already died. So the idea of verse 29 is that as Christians were martyred, their places are continually being filled by new converts ready to stand for Christ. So somebody watched their friend die, and then they said, I'm now going to be baptized on behalf of this person because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And then the final interpretation, it claims that those baptized on behalf of the dead are living believers who give outward testimony to their faith in baptism by water because they were first drawn to Christ by the exemplary faithful influence and witness of believers who have died. So they watched these people, this beloved family member, live a Christian life. And, bef- and whenever that person died in Christ, they, they said, I want to get baptized because I believe in Jesus Christ and I had an example of this person who was dead and I want to be baptized on behalf of them. Personally, I, I tend to land on the last view, um, just given the rest of the passage. Um, but I can't say with certainty what Paul means here just to let you all know. But I I tend to land there uh, in in my view. I believe I can say with certainty that view number one is one that you shouldn't have, okay? And and, and, in the hopes of moving on, since Paul does not downright condemn or command, um, we should also probably just be moving on. But I do think he does place a certain weight on baptism that we should be taking heed of. At the very least, Paul and the rest of the Bible teach that because Jesus has been resurrected, baptism, though it's not necessary for salvation, is a response of obedience for those who believe in Jesus Christ. There's clearly an identification uh, with God and his people in verse 29 that Paul is getting at here. And, And I think that's true of what we do in baptism, right? That whenever we're baptized, we're identifying ourselves with Christ's death and resurrection, but also with other people who have believed in that same reality. 
And, and, and I know that there are a few of you here, even this morning, that are wrestling through this topic of baptism. And, and, and I pray that you'll continue to wrestle with that, whether or not you should be baptized, when you should be baptized, all that different things. I want to affirm you in your working through this, especially if you have faith in Jesus Christ. But I do want to let you know that this is no light thing that we should just casually ignore. It is something that Paul ends up saying that this is important to this church. Why else will Paul say that baptism on behalf of the dead is moot if it were not for Christian belief in the resurrection of the dead? So at the very least, he does place a weight of baptism that I think we ought to as well. Paul affirms baptism, but for like many of us, we need to think about the right reason and the right time of when we do it. And it's not just baptism that is pointless here in this passage if there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul claims that he could have avoided much hardship and suffering if the dead were not raised in verses 31 through 32. When he mentions that he fought with the beasts of Ephesus, he's talking about the riot that ensued in Acts 19 from him preaching in the name of Jesus amidst the people that believed in these many fake gods. And this one guy who made a fake god, he got so mad that he was like, not having any sales of his fake God, that he was like, I'm going to ensue a riot and hopefully to kill Paul. So Paul's like, why would I even like go through all that if there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, Paul goes on in, in 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 11 to speak about his hardship and himself dying and suffering for the sake of the gospel uh, in this way. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." Paul's saying, I could have avoided all of this if there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul and likely many of these believers in Corinth have suffered for the sake of the gospel. And all of it is for nothing if Jesus has not been raised. And if there is no promise for the dead to be raised. But Paul, as we see, has labored to make known to them and to us that Jesus has in fact been raised. And there's a day where those who trust in him will be raised too. From the latter half of verse 32 to the end of our passage, we see Paul really get to the heart of the matter of why this claim is so foolish, why this false claim is so destructive. Paul asserts here that it is likely those who are making this claim that they just want to do whatever they want. If there's a person saying that there's no resurrection of the dead, they just kind of want to live however they want to live. Paul responds, do not not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It ruins good morals. This company of people who want to eat, drink, and be merry because they're just going to die. They're actually morally dangerous to the church. They could and likely have led genuine brothers and sisters into sin because of such a claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. But these people that are making this claim, I think, what they're really wanting is licensure to sin. They just want to do whatever they want. So what does Paul say to these poor influencers in the church? Wake up from your drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. He tells these brothers and sisters, making this claim, I think you're wanting to just sin. Wake up. If you know God, then you know that this should not be the lifestyle of those who have been redeemed by God. He doesn't just shame them to merely say, I told you so. Gotcha. He's not saying that. No, he loves them enough to tell them the truth and to point out their error and its damaging effects. If they really knew God, then this claim would have been dealt with and put away at once. But Paul, in their lack of knowledge, loves them enough to remind them and to also push them toward righteous living. Friends, our pursuit of what God deems as righteous, as good, as beautiful, it means nothing if you do not believe in what God says we must believe in. You can be the most righteous person, but if you don't agree with what God says is good and right, that righteousness is worthless. Our knowledge of God is meant to drive us to holiness. Our knowledge of God is meant to drive us toward holiness. I believe this is why Paul places this chapter at the end of this letter. 
The Corinthians had so much junk in their church. And Paul is asking these folks to do some extremely countercultural and difficult things for the sake of faithfulness and holiness to God. Seeking unity amidst division, being sexually pure, regarding and loving others more than yourself, it's not just a countercultural ask. It's a call for these believers there, and even for us, brethren, to die to ourselves. It's a call to die. I can only imagine the things that the knowledge of God and your growth in that knowledge of God is leading you to. For some of us, it might be just simply giving up a bad habit. For others, it might mean a seemingly warped relationship with friends and family members, all because you're following Jesus. For others, it might mean giving up your time and your resources in such a way that shows the watching world that you believe in the resurrection, you believe in Jesus more than the sports and the activities and all these different things that you do. It it means more than the house that you live in. Friends, your knowledge of God might mean pursuing others in this church that you typically don't spend your time with. It might mean loving those that you just haven't grown up with. Crossing the aisle of the church, if you will, and getting to know them and love them. Our knowledge of God may mean that we need to die to the reality that God desires for you to break through the awkwardness of sharing the gospel with somebody. Your knowledge of God should urge you toward uncomfortableness in your silence. Friend, your knowledge of God might even be teaching you that you don't get your way all the time. Very simply, we are all called to grow in our knowledge of God, and little by little as we grow in that knowledge, we are all being called to die. We're all being called to die. But Paul is wanting to assure these believers and us this morning that it's much easier to die. It's much easier to die to yourself when you know you will be raised back to life. And it's even easier to face death itself and have hope in all these different things when you know that Jesus has already died and been raised back to life. We can know, just as the song that we're getting ready to sing proclaims, what a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. That's why we die. Because we will be raised. Because in fact, Christ has been raised. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that indeed Christ has been raised. It is a fact. God, there are brothers and sisters that have given their lives for this reality. There are those who have died with the hope of Christ in their hearts. And we ask God in your kindness that you would make our hope in Christ unwavering. And because of that, we would seek to live righteous and holy lives. Not for the sake of boasting in ourselves, but boasting in Christ and Christ alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing together.